And let's take our Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 8, chapter 9, sorry, Acts chapter 9. And uh, we are looking at the account of uh, Saul's great transformation. He was a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church, and he became a, a brethren and a preacher for the church, or for the Lord. And we have looked at the background of Saul in verse 1 and 2 early on. And in our passage, we find that Saul asked two basic questions that I believe are important for us to consider. And as the light from heaven shines around about Saul, we might have expected at this time destruction and judgment based upon what Saul had been doing, persecuting the church, breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord. However, we find that instead of destruction, Saul finds deliverance. And that's a great reminder for all of us. I think we all understand that we deserve the judgment and the destruction of God, but yet He's brought about deliverance for us. God is always much more interested in deliverance than destruction. That's why the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is what the Lord is interested in. You know, Saul was first identified as a a blasphemer in verse 1 of chapter 9. The Bible says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord. He thought he was serving the Lord. But he was breathing out slaughters against the disciples of the Lord. And so we could refer properly to Saul as he referred to himself in 1 Timothy as a blasphemer. But then as we go down to verse 17 of the same chapter, the Bible says, And Ananias went his way and entered into the house where Saul was, and putting his hand on him said, Brother Saul. Saul the blasphemer, but now he would soon be called Saul the brother. What a transformation that would take place in the life of Saul. And so let's read again our passage and look at our account again. Consider those two questions. The Bible says, And Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou, what thou must do. As I mentioned, there are two questions asked by Saul in this account. Both questions of, are, are of great importance. The first really concerns salvation. Who art thou, Lord? Who is the Lord? Jesus asked his disciples that same question. Who, who do people say that I am? And then, but who do you say that I am? 
And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so the first question concerns salvation, but then we have a, a second question found in verse 6. What will thou have me to do? That's also an important question. The first concerns salvation. The second concerns service, or we could also say surrender. Now, answering the first question always precedes the second question. You see, salvation is indeed an immediate escape from the judgment of hell, from the wrath of God, but salvation is also an open door to service. So there's, it's a twofold thing. It is, yes, an immediate escape from the judgment of God and hellfire, but at the same time, salvation is an open door for service and surrender. As we study the Word of God, we find that Paul would speak at length of this time when God did a work in his heart, and then he, he changed, not only he understood salvation in the person of Christ, but then he engaged into a life of service. And by the way, Paul would later write the church at Rome, and he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, and he says, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable. It's not unreasonable. If you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, as you hold your place here in Acts chapter 9, we consider as Paul writes to uh, Timothy, his son in the faith, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 12, but uh, Saul, or Paul at this time, he gives us a glimpse of, of what this is all about. And notice here in 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, Paul says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. What is that? That's service. But notice what he says after that. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now we would say, well, yeah. Saul was the chief sinner. I mean, look at him, blasphemer, injurious, injurious, persecutor. Can I say that that should be all of our opinions about ourselves? We should not look on somebody else, well, that person is the chief sinner over there. No, no. The only reply, if we know ourselves in truth, is to say as Paul, I'm the chief sinner. He says, verse 16, How be it for this cause... I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so, uh, 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 Paul, uh, the only thing he can say unto God be glory, because my life as the chief of sinner is a pattern that everybody can look at my life and say, God can do the same in my life. In Ephesians chapter 
2, verse 8 and 9, we're familiar with those verses, but Paul would refer both to deliverance for salvation, but then to the open door for service when he would say in Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we are saved, the Bible says, by the grace of God, through faith in the person and the work of Christ. And so we're not saved by works, but by grace through faith. And But then he says in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we are saved by grace through faith, and immediately upon our salvation, we are created in Christ Jesus, Unto good works. That's a new creation that happens at salvation. We'll look at, uh, let, let's turn with me to Romans chapter 6. I, I guess it would be a good time to consider what uh, Paul wrote to the church at Rome concerning not only salvation, but this open door to service. In Romans chapter 6, he has already settled salvation as we dealt with in Sunday school this morning. In chapter 5, in verse 1, the Bible says, Therefore, being justified by faith, We have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God through the merit of Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 6, and in verse 1, he says this, What shall we say then, now that we are saved, salvation has been settled, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, we know what the answer is. God forbid. He says, How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He goes on to say in verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ was baptized into His death? He's not talking about the water baptism, but the baptism that happens when we are indwelt by the Spirit of God upon our salvation. And he goes on to say, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, uh, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over Him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. You see what happened at salvation? The fact that we are buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. We died to sin and we became alive unto righteousness. And so yes, we are saved from the destruction and the wrath of God and the penalty of sin in hell. But at the same time, salvation is the door that opens for us to serve God. You see... Salvation never promotes or never gives an occasion to sin. If someone says truly in their heart, well now that I'm saved I can live as I please, then you have not understood salvation. Because salvation is the open door as we are awakened to righteousness to serve God. The first question in Paul's life was, Who art thou, Lord? And 
Based upon that understanding, we know in other passages of Scripture describing in Philippians, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of Christ by faith. And so we understand here that uh, the Apostle Paul came to a knowledge of who Jesus Christ was as the Messiah, as the Redeemer, and that is the first question. He gets that answer, who art thou, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And we've looked at that question, and we've answered that question, but then notice the second question is this, in verse 6, And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I want to preach this evening on this second question. We preached on the first question last week, Who art thou, Lord? And tonight's question is, What wilt thou have me to do? The first question concerns salvation. The second question concerns surrender or service. I want to focus a little while this morning on this truth that we find in the life of the Apostle Paul about his service and his surrender. The Apostle Paul, throughout even the book of Acts, twice he would give a testimony of his surrender to God. We find that explained even in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in Philippians chapter 3, where he would share not only the work of salvation in his life, but the great opportunity that God has counted to put the Apostle Paul into the ministry, but not just in the ministry, but to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. And we know that the majority of uh, the New Testament has been penned by uh, Paul himself under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so, in great part, he is part of the, the foundation of the church, as Jesus Christ says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so the apostles, again, we look to the apostles for the doctrine that we teach and we hold today in the church as we find throughout those writings. And Paul would often speak of this moment when he was, according to him, was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. God gave him a work to do. And can I say to you, Christian, that Yes, God loves you and He wants to save you if you're not saved. And he, if He has saved you, He has saved you unto something else than where you were before. In other words, your life has changed. The direction of your life has changed. Yes, your sins have been wiped away, but at the same time, the direction and the trajectory of your life has changed because of the work of Christ in your life. I want to consider here in this question in verse 6, and we'll just consider verse 6 this morning. I want to consider first of all the manner in which he surrendered. The manner in which Saul surrendered. Before the question comes, what will thou have me to do? The Bible tells us in verse 6, and he, now this is based upon hearing what he just heard. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Uh, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And the Bible says, and he trembling and astonished. As he is about to ask the Lord this next question, notice the manner of the, the surrender that takes place in the life of the Apostle Paul. There are two words that are used to describe the manner in which Saul asked the Lord this second question. The Bible says, trembling and astonished. Saul was both, we could say, fearful, but also he was at the same time amazed. 
trembling and astonished. Let's think about those two words. The word trembling literally means to be in fear. Uh, In other words, Saul was afraid of the Lord. Saul thought, again, that he had been serving the Lord and he has been revealed now that he has been persecuting the Lord. Jesus said, why persecutest thou me? That's what Jesus said. And now he realizes that he has been persecuting the Lord. There would have been a right expectation in the life of Saul of judgment. Right? The Lord comes. He is on the road to Damascus. He has a letter from the high priest to take anybody that is of that way. He's breathing out threatenings and slaughters against all the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been indiscriminatory. He is taking both men and women. He goes from house to house. Uh, He drags them out of their house. That's what is in his mind. That is the work that he is involved in. And all of a sudden he realizes that he's been fighting God all along. And he probably thought, I deserve to be punished for that. He's trembling. He is fearful, no doubt expecting judgment. But at the same time, we have the word astonished. Trembling and astonished. The word astonished means to stupefy, to to be astounded, to be amazed. You see, what was he amazed at? Well, Saul was amazed that Jesus Christ was the Lord. Remember, that's what he had been fighting all along. Jesus Christ is not the Lord. Uh, As a matter of fact, those who were part of the Sanhedrin council had said to the apostles, you can continue to do what you do, but you cannot teach or preach in that name. And I'm convinced that they would have been fine with the apostles teaching on anybody else's name but the name of Jesus. And so now, uh, Saul gets to the place where he recognizes, he is astonished, he is amazed that Jesus Christ is Lord. We uh, turn, if you turn with me to Philippians, it's interesting what Paul would say, and I mentioned earlier the testimony of, of Paul, and he talks about those who glory in the flesh. And in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 4, uh, Paul writes, and he says, "...though I might also have confidence in the flesh..." If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, Those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, that is Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So in other words... Uh, Paul is astonished because understand all that he had done as a Pharisee. He not only had tried to conform himself to the Old Testament law, but the Jews of the day had added some 365 other rules, and uh, they would say that it was kind of a, a fence 
around the garden of the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And the Jews came up with the Talmud and they regarded the Talmud as a fence, as a protection around the garden of the Torah. And what, and what they did is they added a bunch of rules in addition to the Bible in order to protect the Bible. And Jesus Christ told them in their ministry, by your tradition you have made the law of God of none effect. They destroyed completely the law by their fence to protect it. And so Saul up to this point, he's had complete confidence in his own righteousness. But here he is astonished. Why? Because when the answer comes, Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus. He knows the implications of that. And the implication of that is he's amazed because Jesus Christ is Lord. We sing the song here. And so here again in Philippians 3, he says, Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Well, that would cause Paul to be amazed. Why? Because everything has changed in a moment. Before, my righteousness. Now, his righteousness. That's completely different. Uh, that's why we sing the song... Um, uh, my Savior's love, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene uh, and wonder how He could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. You see, Paul came before he asked the question, he came trembling and astonished. He was fearful and yet at the same time amazed. And I believe that that is the, the, the manner in which we should all surrender. We come to God and we, there ought to be a healthy fear of God. We understand that as sinners we deserve the wrath of God. And we don't take an approach to God as we say, God, what can I do for you? We don't approach that lightly. We should approach that in fear and trembling. To consider the seriousness of what it means to serve God. But also at the same time to come into the presence of God and to ask the question that Saul asked, uh, what will thou have me to do? But to do that in amazement at who the Lord is and what He has done for us. So that is the manner in which He surrendered. But then secondly, as we consider the question, we see the meaning of surrender. I want you to notice the question because as He is coming to the Lord and trembling and astonished, He said, Lord, what will Thou have me to do? I want to talk a little while this morning on what does it mean to surrender? What's the meaning? We know how we should approach it. But what is actually surrender? And I want you to notice first of all, surrender is a recognition of authority. Surrender is a recognition of authority. Now remember early on he has said, Who art thou, Lord? And so he knew that whoever was speaking to him, that was the Lord. But he asked specifically because the Lord had just told him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And so he needs an answer to that question, Who art thou, Lord? And the answer is, I am Jesus. And now this time when he asks this next question, he says, Lord, 
What does that mean? He's talking to Jesus. Jesus had just said, I am Jesus. So when he says Lord, he says Lord to Jesus. The name Lord or the title Lord means He who is supreme in authority. It is another way to say Master. Master? What is that? Surrender is a recognition of who has authority. Now, we should all be honest with ourselves and we all understand none of us, I'll include myself in that, none of us like authority. Correct? Y'all can shake your head. Even if you want to verbalize, amen, you can shake your head. I, 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 all my kids, they don't like authority either. There's something within us that says, you know what? I want to be my own man. I want to be my own woman. I want to make my own decisions. I, I don't want to do anything that I don't want to do. You see, the flesh always fights for itself to be in charge. And here, just by saying, Lord, He's saying, you're the master. You have authority over me. Not just because of salvation, because the very breath that Paul is breathing at that very moment comes from the Almighty God. God, from the very beginning, He breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And when man dies, the Spirit goes back to, uh, uh, the Spirit goes back to Him that gave it. And we understand that God can take that at any moment He wants. So surrender is a recognition of authority. You see, unless we recognize that God is over us, we will never serve Him. So first, surrender is a recognition of authority, but also, secondly, surrender is a rectification of priorities. Notice here he says, Lord, what will Thou have me to do? Now notice, what will Thou have me to do? Saul doesn't say, Lord, what is it that I need to do? No, he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? What, what does that tell us? It tells us that uh, Saul, he rectified his priority. Up to this point, he's been doing everything, uh, everything that he's done has been self-induced and self-motivated. Nobody told Paul to do what he did to the church. He took it upon himself. The first time we see him as a witness, he stood by the coats and the vestures of those who stoned Stephen to death. He stood there and he kept their garments. The Bible tells us that he consented unto death. He was happy about it, but evidently it emboldened him to take it upon himself. Nobody commissioned him. He took it upon himself to get the commission from the high priest, a letter, so that he could go from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue and to beat Christians who were of that way and we know, now know he says look I don't want to do what I want to do anymore I want to do what you want me to do that's surrender surrender is a rectification of priorities not our priorities God's priorities now that, there's a difference there you see he has authority over us but he also do we believe that he has priorities for our lives now therein is where the battle lies. We have our own priorities too. Sometimes, sometimes 
Our priorities do not align with God's priorities. And if surrender takes place in our lives, that means that we align our priorities with God's priorities. So surrender, first of all, is a recognition of authority. It is a rectification of priority. But also, thirdly, surrender is a reckoning of personal responsibility. Do you notice the question? He says, what will thou, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Me. Saul doesn't say, Lord, what, what, what is he going to do over there? Remember what, what Peter, Jesus Christ, was talking to John, and, and Peter said, uh, what's going to happen to John? And Jesus said, what concern is that to you? You, Peter, you follow me. Let's go there to John, last chapter in John. Let's look at that. It'll fit right in there. Notice with me, John chapter 21. And let's look here, verse 18. Okay, so John 21, verse 18. Jesus Christ has, has raised from the dead. He has not ascended yet. But notice verse 18 of John 21. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thine hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. And so he's talking to Peter, and evidently he's talking about the manner of Peter's death. So, then Peter, verse 20, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith uh, uh, to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Peter why are you concerning yourself with John? Why is that even a thought in your, in your heart, in your mind? Uh, and uh, again, Jesus Christ has just shared with Peter what death he should die. And so now Peter all of a sudden he becomes concerned with the other disciples. And he thinks, well, what, what about this guy over here? And what about this guy? And notice what Jesus says. If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. You, Peter, don't worry about anybody else. You, Peter, you follow me. You see, when we think about surrender, often we like to surrender for everybody else except ourselves. Well, somebody needs to serve God. You're right. And that somebody is me. That somebody is you. You see, when true surrender happens... No other human being but ourselves is in consideration. Lord, what will thou have me to do? You see, this is very personal in our individual life. And so surrender, the meaning of surrender is that there is a recognition of authority. There is a rectification of priority to God's priorities. And there is a reckoning of personal responsibility. So we see the manner uh, in which he surrendered, the meaning of surrender, but also we see the measure of surrender. Alright, so what will thou have me to do? 
And he's going to be the apostle of the Gentiles. Well, he's going to be that, but that's not what God tells him. Do you notice what God tells him? Here's, here is the, look, look with me, here is the big responsibility, the, the overwhelming uh, priority that God is going to place on the life of Saul. And the Lord said unto him, verse 6, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. That's it. That's it. So far. That's it. Well, well wait a minute. That, 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 if we surrender to God, God better tell us something important. Is that so? Remember what he told to Abraham? Get thee out of Ur of the Chaldee and go into a land that I will show thee. Well, what land? I'll show you. You just need to get up and go. Here he says basically the same thing to Saul. He says, arise. So, in other words, get up, go into the city. What city? Damascus, where he was headed. And it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now, we know later that Paul had a great calling upon his life. He speaks of himself as the apostle of the Gentiles. And by the way, he did not boast of that because he said himself uh, that I, I am not worthy to be called an apostle of Christ. He even said of himself that not even comparing himself with other apostles, he says, I am the least of all the brethren. So he did not consider himself a great apostle. He considered himself underneath all the apostles. But then he also considered himself underneath every single believer in Christ. But the measure of surrender is this here. There is no big task that is announced. It's just get up and go to the city where you're heading. And then when you get there, it's going to be told thee what thou must do. And by the way, it would be three days before somebody would come, uh, not knowing what was going on, not knowing what he should have done. And so understand that the measure of surrender is not measured by the, the height of the tasks or the greatness of the responsibility, but in the immediate submission of whatever the responsibility is. That's the measure of surrender. You know, sometimes we may equate greatness to a specific task. And we may say, well, God, I'll serve you if I can do this, 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 and this. But if I can't do those things, I don't want to do all these other things. Well, that's not surrender then. Because you don't measure surrender by how great the responsibility is. You measure true surrender by obedience to whatever the task is. I enjoy hearing the testimony of my father-in-law when he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior. He was working in the casinos in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And God uh, saved him, gloriously saved him, and then soon he, they began to go to church and they... Uh, they were baptized and they began to be involved and uh, the church was looking for somebody to, to clean the bathrooms. And he volunteers and they volunteered. At the time they had a cleaning business on the side, not only working in the casinos but a cleaning business. Hey, you know, we, we can clean the bathroom. And uh, that was his first task of service to God. Cleaning the toilets. Well, that's, that's, that's not important. I, well, I say, well, you may think it's not important but if it is 
obedience to Christ, isn't that the measure of surrender? God wants us to do this. Then they were looking for, uh, soon after they were looking for a bus driver, and they needed volunteers, and in the whole congregation, nobody was volunteering, so he was looking around, he's like, I'll, I'll be a bus driver. I'll, I'll pick up kids to come to church. Some people after church told him and said, so you want to do that? He said, well, I want to. You know, just driving a bus, it seems menial, it seems unimportant. Now, he's been a pastor for many years. But the measure of his surrender was not his pastorate. The measure of his surrender was in his obedience in cleaning the toilet. You see, the Apostle Paul, do we think that he would have been called the, the Apostle to the Gentiles if he first had not arisen and gone to Damascus? He did not have sight. He could have said, I'm going to go home. I can't see. I'm not going to wait there to find out what's going to happen later. No, no. Remember his question? What will thou have me to do? That is surrender. The measure of surrender. Not in the greatness of the responsibility, but in our obedience to this responsibility. So we see here the manner in which he surrendered, his approach to the Lord, the meaning of surrender, a recognition of authority, a rectification of priority, a reckoning of personal responsibility, and the measure of surrender. We would go on and notice here as we read in the text, we'll deal with it next week, but notice verse 7, And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man, and Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. So what's, what's, Paul surrenders, what's going to be the great thing? Wait. Three days, nothing. Can't see, can't eat. That doesn't look like greatness. Oh, but it is if it's obedience to the Lord. And there was a certain disciple of Damascus, no, not even an apostle, a certain disciple named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision of Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am, uh, uh, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a, a, a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on, on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. I want to make a few quick points here. And we're going to cover this extensively next week. But notice here, the first time God spoke of Saul's future responsibility was not to Saul, but to one of the disciples of, of Christ, Ananias. Ananias th thinks to himself, well, I, I know we, everybody knows Saul of Tarsus. He was heading to Damascus. We know what he was going to do. And the Lord said, just go. And you know, we, we don't talk a whole lot about Ananias. But you know what Ananias did? He surrendered too. And I wonder, 
If there had not been an Ananias, there probably wouldn't have been a Saul. The surrender of Ananias. He would go to Saul and then he would tell Saul what God told him. Surrender. Ananias is forgotten no more. After this, we don't hear any more about him. And we think that ah, he's just kind of a blip in the Bible. In Acts chapter 9. Oh, no, no. Because it's through, it was through Ananias undergirding a former persecutor of the church. Surrender to God to do something that is insignificant to all of us to just to show up and to tell Him this is what God wants you to do. And then what God would bring about a great work through the life of the Apostle Paul. But I'm telling you that both the surrender of Saul and the surrender of Ananias is exactly what we need as Christians. Nothing great is happening in this chapter yet. We're going to see Paul do some great things. But that's not where surrender begins. And so may the Lord help us to think about this question. You know, we should all ask first the question, if we're not saved, who is the Lord? Who art thou, Lord? And come to an understanding of who Jesus is and what He did for us. But then the immediate question is not only an escape from hell fire and the wrath of God, but is also an open door for service. And the question that should be on all of our minds is, what will thou, Lord, have me to do? You know, we sing the song, uh, I don't know if we sing it, but it's me, it's me, it's me, Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, father, mother, whatever they, they put in that song. It's me, Lord. And God wants you and you and you and you individually. And so I hope that this gives us some understanding into the idea and the truth about a surrender. And we'll continue to look at Ananias next week and look at some details about his life, hopefully to help us as we seek to serve the Lord.